Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, so a lot of you had Mardi Gras, and uh, my Mardi Gras consisted of sitting on the porch and waving at people <laughs> with um, uh, some goodies and, uh, and, and having my husband home for the second day um, after his a long sojourn in a nursing home and in a, a rehab center. Um, so it was a very important Mardi Gras for me, but it wasn't quite um, being out in the middle of a parade in the street somewhere. And I must say, I saw a picture of the crowd on um, Canal Street, and I was blown away at how many people were out there. And I don't know whether it's just because I don't usually look at an overhead shot like that. You know, we didn't have drones taking pictures of uh, parades uh, that long ago. Um, but it, it, um, it's been an interesting time, uh, but I, I have to be, admit that I've been a little bit obsessed with healthcare issues. Um, and when I got him home, Robert Tannen, then I have to address the issue of home care. So um, I have really been having to talk to a lot of people who are much more expert uh, uh, about that than me. And Christian Rubito, who is the uh, CEO of uh, Home Instead. I don't know if that's your right title. Is that the, I'm, just, the, I'm the general manager, but hopefully one day I'll be the CEO. So thank you for uh, that. <laughs> general manager is a um, tougher job. So yeah, right. <laughs> I know that you are. Um, so um, he's the uh, general manager of Home Instead, which is a company that helps people secure cure the home care help that they need. And trust me, you need it. Don't for one second think that you and your grandchildren or uh, children can handle the situation because it's much more complicated and requires much more precise professional skills than you might imagine. And um, Home Instead is one of those companies that provide that professional level of care that is important. So I'm going to let Christian uh, talk to us a little bit about the whole idea of home care and essentially how it works. And then we're going to dive into some of the um, issues that we are seeing now trending that have to be addressed. So Christian, uh, you know, it, not everybody has had this experience. Everybody will have had it by the time uh, they pass through their um, passage on earth. Um, so it's something that we really, I think, need to understand better and be better prepared for. Because if you are learning it, let's say OJT, on-the-job training at the moment that is occurring, it's harder than it should be. So give us a little bit of a, a sort of primer on um, the whole idea of home care and how it works. And I have to assume, tell me I'm wrong, that it is an increasing trend in a way to deal with people's care when they come out of, um, let's say, the, a hospital or, or even just um, uh, out of a procedure and, and so forth. I mean, uh, there's all kinds of different levels of need. So give, give me a little bit of a primer. <clears throat> exactly. And thanks, Jean. Um, so home care is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's the whole point is to have your loved one age gracefully, happily, safely, wherever they call home. Mostly it's in their home setting. Sometimes it's, it, it can be in a nursing home or, or a facility. Um, but for the majority of our clients, at least, it, it is in their home. 
And what we do specifically is the non-medical things. So anything from companionship to light housekeeping, cooking, cleaning, transportation, personal care. Um, really, the emphasis is on the companionship because that's where the bonds are built. Um, that's where the relationships are, are you know, thriving. Um, and that's where we find that our caregivers really enjoy the most is during that companionship aspect of it. And you were right in your in your um, analysis on home care about there being a, a greater need for it now. And I think that's based on two things. I think it's based on the generation of the boomers, you know, getting older and needing care. But then also we found that after the pandemic, um, a lot more people see the the value of aging at home, not only for their safety you know, issues, but also um, just for personal reasons. It's where they grew up. It's where they're most comfortable. It's where they're the happiest. So why not be able to age appropriately in their home with the right amount of care? Um, so again, there's so many different kinds of, of home care and needs on the part of people who come uh, into a time in their life when they need some kind of help. And it's not necessarily um, oriented just towards the elderly. It could be any age. So physical therapy, occupational therapy, nursing, and social work in general are all the kind of professional um, services that come into play. Um, so physical therapy, obviously that one's easy. That's, that's just literally getting somebody's movement skills uh, improved. Um, whereas occupational therapy is really all about sort of independence, functioning. And um, that one's the one that has been fascinating to me because that's, that's what's the most difficult in a way. You know, you can you can take a little exercise manual and, and see how you can, you know, march your feet or uh, use little weights to strengthen your arms. But uh, getting from bed to wheelchair, from wheelchair to toilet to shower and back, um, that's that's a challenge. I had no idea how much. And um, uh, your folks are trained and skilled in dealing with that. But uh, share with people why those things are <clears throat> difficult, more difficult than you might imagine. Well, it's something that we take for granted. Um, you know, I think it's, we, we go about our day every day, just doing the tasks we do without thinking twice about it. For someone who's a senior, it, it obviously is, uh, it's taking a toll on them. That means the reason why they'll call a company like Home Instead in the beginning to, to help out with these things. Um, they're called activities of daily living. Um, and then um, obviously, you know, the, the whole point is that to do these things on a daily basis is to live a comfortable life. So once those activities become a little more stressful, a little more hard, a little more difficult, um, that's when you know that you might need to turn and look for help. Um, but we do have a great orientation here at Home Instead. One day um, is a, it's a full day of all personal care training and everything that you spoke of, how to transfer somebody from, let's say, bedside commode to bed or from wheelchair to bedside commode um, or just help standing up or how to properly get somebody up and help somebody sit back down. There's, you know, there's these uh, tactics for everything that you wouldn't think there would be, but dealing with somebody who's fragile and um, who could need that extra help. Uh, I th we think it's very important to take a full day to really, you know, 
jump into that and make sure we're doing it the correct way because there is an incorrect way to do it. <laughs> well, and 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 speaking of that, I mean, um, in the nursing home, uh, my husband did have a challenge when he was being transferred from a wheelchair back to bed and something went wrong with the placement of his legs, which is something you don't think very much about, but <clears throat> placement of legs can be a very tricky business. And when he um, got in, there was something that wasn't done right with the placement of legs causing a, a huge pain. And that pain didn't go away. It wasn't like, oh, it was. It happened at the moment and then it was over. It, it stayed. Um, and actually still continues to be an issue when he is trying to do the kind of movements that were involved in that transfer. So, yeah, it's 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 obviously a lot more um, the simplest things are more complicated than you realize. It's just like, you know, I guess in a way, watching a child, a baby, learning how to do the simplest functions like, you know, walk, not necessarily walk, but crawl, get up. Um, as you watch that, you see how much more um, tricky it is for the body to uh, really move through those different stages of the simplest things like getting up from a crawl. Um, of course, at my age, you also have problems figuring out, okay, now how do I get out of this chair if your back is bothering you? And a lot of people in their later <coughs> back issues. So uh, that's not just a home care issue. That's also the issue of um, you know, dealing with um, uh, literally just, uh, you know, trying to do the normal things that maybe you're not as easy doing as easily as you used to. You know, that's actually another question that I, I'd want to jump to for just a minute, just so I don't forget it. There's home care full time for home care for people who are coming out of um, surgery or out of a, um, an accident or a hospital or whatever. But do you also have home care that's more fractured, where it's really just like someone comes for a visit, <laughs> much like the way the hospitals do that visit, but maybe a little more extended? Yeah, so we have, you know, all home cares have different types of minimum hours per week or per day or per shift. Um, you know, we do do 24-7 care for those people who need the more hands-on care. We do have some people who just use this, you know, 12 hours a week who might need as, as who might not need as much personal care. Um, but we have everyone in between. So like you said, somebody who's being discharged from a hospital, um, you know, their schedule might be a little more uh, intense, if you will, um, and may need a more skilled caregiver who, who knows how to do the personal care things. Um, but we, we certainly do have those, those clients who just really need and want to thrive on that companionship who are just lonely, who just want a friend. Um, and those are the ones that um, caregivers really cherish the most um, because they really become part of the family. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's just everything in between. So I, I when you talk about uh, become part of the family, I, I really have only been at this now for a week, but um, the people who I have uh, right now, uh, two caregivers, and um, I, I've just learned so much just in a week about not just the, the those um, again those physical um, uh, functional issues, but about the relating, how to relate to somebody who's in a challenged condition. And I'm not the most patient person in the whole world, <laughs> so I've really had to work at 
the patience that I've observed on the part of the caregivers. I mean, it's really remarkable. And, and you realize that the people who are really good at that, that's another question. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this program with you is that I really, uh, I'm aware of the fact that there's a staffing shortage in the health industry in general, not to mention all of industries. We have a very interesting period we're going through. But um, I realized that um, that's also a factor. I mean, getting people who not only have the professional skills, but have those personal skills of relating with folks, both the the patient and the family. Those are, those are two different kinds of relationships with the family. You have to be patient with our our fundamental, um, I, I, I don't want to use the word incompetence, but we, we certainly have to learn how to deal with this situation. So just dealing with somebody who is uninformed is, is a challenge. And then the, the patient, of course. And they, it takes them time to figure out the patient's normal way of operating and understanding that as the context out of which you're coming into a new context when you are um, needing help. Oh, exactly. Not necessarily. Some of us like help and some of us don't want to be helped. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, my husband is a classic example of a guy <laughs> who doesn't want to be helped. Right, but right. He's having to accept it. And that's a that takes a lot of um, psychological um, shifting. Oh, we have a ton of clients who it seems like the care is really more for the son or daughter or for the spouse or for, for somebody else than, than really more for the client. But um, after a while, the client does see the benefit in having somebody there to help because we try to stress this as much as possible. We're not there to change your life. We're not there to take over your life and tell you what to do. And it's our rule. It's our authority. That's not what we're about. We're about enhancing your life and making your life easier, better. Um, maybe even bringing some joy and some peace to things that you haven't been able to do, you know, in your current age. We always ask on our on our uh, our care consultations when we try to sign up the clients. We always ask them, "What what what did you used to do? What would you like to get accomplished now?" So we're always trying to get into that um, aspect to to make their life a little, you know, more happy things that they're used to. I think one of the other challenges that I've um, experienced, again, has to do with those expectations. So the you come, your, your patient comes home with, um, without a real uh, clear, without certainty mm -hmm. about outcomes. So are we dealing with being able to, again, transfer from a wheelchair to the bed? Is that going to be it? Or are we trying to get to being able to walk again? Are we, getting, uh, are we looking to getting to be able to walk with a walker, without a walker? I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty about outcomes right. that I have found to be a challenge. And so uh, talk to me about that a little bit. Sure. And that's where our um, our client care coordination team comes into play. So very much like a case manager in a hospital or whatnot, um, our, our team of, of ladies will go and do quality assurance visits every so often with our clients to make sure that their plan of care is up to date um, and actually effective. You know, they're the ones who go out and, and lay eyes on the client and make sure that they're not, um, you know, getting any worse 
that they are progressing, that they are happy with their caregivers, that the caregiver match with the client is appropriate and it is it is it is thriving. Because you know, believe it or not, there's a lot of um, caregiver client matches that that don't work, and that's what we're about. That's the beauty of of being an agency like us. We're the ones to be able to find the next best caregiver for you, so you don't have to look for it for yourself. Um, but no, absolutely. That's what our client care team does. They're the ones who diagnose the problems and they're the ones who stay on top of it to make sure that the case is going smoothly and make sure the clients are happy with their current plan and then also the caregivers. But as you can imagine, as we get older, as things happen with health, with mental things, um, sometimes that plan has to be adjusted. Um, and our care, all, most of our caregivers are, are ready to take that journey with those clients. Interesting. So let's address the, the the notion, and again, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show, that there is a staffing shortage. I mean, I, I'm faced with, you know, the possibility that I can't secure a person who would be a good match for my husband for over a month. Well, that that doesn't work. I need somebody now. And uh, most people, again, when somebody comes out of a hospital, they, they, they need somebody right away. So we, we need to address the issue of uh, staffing shortage mm-hmm. in this. And one of the ways uh, for that is for more people to understand this particular profession and how to uh, develop a career in it, how to prepare for it, how to determine whether um, that individual uh, has the personality, has the has the characteristics, um, that that caring and inc- inclination uh, to to do it. So I think there are a lot of people in this city who could do this. I mean, New Orleans is we're kind of a rough and tumble town. There's no doubt about it. We have right. our problems, but we also time after time I hear people from elsewhere say, "Wow, people in New Orleans are so welcoming. They're so warm." You know, and I think that pro- fundamentally is a very family-oriented city, more so than some really big cities um, where, you know, you have to make or break it uh, on the merits of, of whatever you do and uh, and not, you, you certainly, where I, I come from, New York, and, and people don't ask you what school, what high school you went to there, you know. Exactly. They, they don't ask you what, what part of the city you grew up in. And, and here it, it's part of the, um, the whole uh, the psychology of, of our relationships with each other is that we pin it uh, right back down to our roots. So uh, let I, I want to uh, encourage people who are out there who normally feel like they are um, concerned about other people, caring people, that this might be a profession that they should explore. Right. Um, I think what I think I, uh, a, a common misconception about being a caregiver is that you need five years of experience in a nursing home and you need to have a CNA license and you need to be able to, you know, be um, or just have that experience that that maybe you don't have. But I can tell you many, many, many fantastic caregivers we've had that we've hired have never had any experience whatsoever. They just maybe took care of mom or dad for a little bit, you know, growing up um, and some didn't even do that. If you have the heart for it, if you're willing to learn, um, if you're if you're a quick learner, um, you know, if you're open to challenges, obviously, then you can thrive in this business for sure. And just to tell you too, you know, a lot of our caregivers um, have plenty of opportunities to to you know to move upward. I'd say right now, thirty to forty percent of our current staff started as caregivers. 
So, you know, it's, it definitely is a career job for a lot of people who are maybe not just looking to do some caregiving. But another good thing about, about, about being a caregiver is that it, it's, it's very flexible hours. You know, you create your own schedule, you know, as you see fit. I mean, you know, we kind of go over some, some boundaries about what could help and what couldn't help about picking hours and whatnot. Um, but most of the people who are caregiver for us do have supplemental jobs or are working full-time job and they just work for us either overnight or on the weekends or whatnot. So just a little bit can make a giant difference in someone's life. Um, you know, and I can also, you know, talk about some other perks of being caregiver with us, whether it's the benefits we offer, whether it's the 401k option that we have, um, whether it's, you know, all the vacation time and, and, and whatnot. But I think the main focus is that it is a very fulfilling job. I know right now we're competing with not just other home care companies, but maybe your fast food you know, companies and places like Home Depot and Lowe's and whatnot. Um, but, yeah. well, you know, you know, when it comes to pay per hour, we're both pretty comparable and other people would say, oh, well, sure. I might want to go to a place like that where it's not as demanding as being a caregiver and caring for a human being. <laughs> but when, once people really get into it and find out that it's all about building relationships with people who, who need it and who have lived a very long, fulfilling life, um, they change their mind very quickly. Um, mm. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you. Getting that word out that this is a very fulfilling job um, is very important to kind of help that workforce rut we're in right now. Um, and, 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 and it's actually pretty well paying. Uh, and of course the flip side of that is that uh, it's expensive for the uh, customer, the family. And so that's something I want to touch on. Um, it, it seems like we don't really have any kind, you know, it, there are those people who it's, it's totally beyond me think that we don't need Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, uh, what I think people don't understand about programs like that is that they are saving money mm-hmm. in many ways in terms of people not um, advancing to worse health, um, who are, you know, we, we talk about um, education where we really need people to be better educated. And as if that is some kind of a cost, it's not a cost, it's a lower cost than people not being well-educated because that's when they land up on the street and uh, look for other ways to make a living when they don't see their possibilities in a, in a career in our, our now, despite what's happening in the tech industry right now, we're still basically a, a tech economy worldwide. Right. And so you better know something about how to do that or else it's gonna be much harder to make a living. But um, I think that one of the things that I'm concerned about because I know from my, in my own case, um, the, the amount of care that I need for a period of time um, is a challenge financially, and, and there really is no easy solution. So I'm, I'm curious as to what's going on in the industry and the thinking about how to deal with um, the question of, of the affordability of home care. Right. So that's always one of the main questions we get. You know, does insurance cover this? How much does it cost? All those things. So the majority of our clients do pay out of pocket. But there are other options. You know, there is long-term care insurance that they can pay for and and utilize. Um, there are VA benefits. So if you're, um, we have this one program called aid and attendance. So if if the client him, him or herself is a veteran, but also their spouse is is surviving, then they can both use that aid and attendance program to pay for for home care up to a certain amount, obviously. Um, 
we actually did at one point partner um, with People's Health, and it was a program all related around dementia. So basically, if somebody had dementia and had PHN as their primary carrier, we were able to provide some help for them. Um, that program has unfortunately expired, but we did have some um, some interest in that for the couple of years that we did have it. So hopefully programs like that will pop up left and right. I mean, I, I think it's going to. I think people are going to see that, you know, certain types of insurances should be able to cover home care. Um, so that's that's our hope for the future. But to answer your question as of right now, I guess the big three would be out-of-pocket long-term care and VA benefits. Mm-hmm. So um, the only thing, I, I have long care, long-term care insurance for myself. My husband couldn't get it because he had, I guess what they call, uh, what is it called uh, when you have a pre-condition? Uh, Pre-existing condition. Pre-existing condition, he has right. MS, so he couldn't uh, get you know, long-term care insurance. But I just wonder, uh, ultimately... Um, whenever I finally in my life will need that care, um, how long will it last and will it be enough to cover, you know? Yeah. I'll have great confidence in that. Right. So I can tell you um, that it just completely depends on the, on the, on the plan that you have, the company you have. I mean, we have clients who've been using the same plan for years. I do know that the plans have changed over the years, whereas the older long-term uh, care insurance plans had a much longer shelf life as opposed to newer plans. Um, some plans are based on how many years you can use it. Some are based on the hours per day you can use it. Some are based on the activities of daily living per day that you use. So they're just all over the board. So to answer yours, but you're specifically, I can't unfortunately, but um, it is very rare in our experience that we see a long-term care plan um, expire during during the client stay with us. It's very rare. It hasn't happened very, very often. Uh, that's very, very reassuring because yes. I have had the insurance program uh, uh, for a long time. And I do, there's two things I, I tell people, the two simple lessons that I've learned so far. Uh, and and I've, I have more lessons to learn, but one of them is um, start saving now. Yes. Whatever now is in your life. Um, for the, the ability to be able to have home-term care, whether um, home home care, uh, rather than being in a nursing home, because um, my experience with nursing homes has not been what I would recommend uh, to anybody. So I think that um, uh, that home care is really important. So save your money and or, as you said, get that insurance policy early so that you are building up the, um, the capacity to be able to get the care that you need uh, uh, be able to afford it. I will say one more thing too on the subject is a lot of people wait till the last second to either use their long-term care or just home care in general. So most mm-hmm. of our clients these days are, are kind of towards the other end of the spectrum where they're, they need a lot more personal care. Some are bed bound, some are on hospice. So we're seeing a, a, a big change in the type of client who's signing up with us as opposed to 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the norm of, of, of a client was somebody who needed maybe two or three days a week, who was mostly companionship. Nowadays, it's the exact opposite. So I don't know if that's because most people are waiting a little longer to, to call and get help or because people are living longer. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, and I would say it's a little bit of both. And it's the third thing. And that is that we have a mindset uh, that we can do more. Uh, longer and sure. older. 
Sure. So we have so many friends, you know, I, I include myself. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm older than a baby boomer, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I've got some, uh, um, what, what is a, a little bit long of tooth is the expression, right. <laughs> but you, you, I'm still working full time. And uh, I think a lot of people are when people talk about the president, what he can, can do or not do it at 80, I'm saying, Oh my goodness, us, you know, uh, plenty, plenty people. <laughs> In their older years, if they have been fit, if they have been, um, you know, keeping moving is the thing that everybody always says, keep right. moving, keep moving, keep moving. Right. Um, uh, so then, so you don't think you, you need that help until later. I think that's another factor. Exactly. Well, I've asked you a lot and you've answered a lot. And so before we close off, because we, we're sort of up against our time frame. Okay. Uh, in fact, we're definitely out of it, but I, I'm <laughs> appreciative of being able to talk with you about this. Are, are there a couple points that you want to make that I did not um, elicit? I think you covered the majority of what I would, I'd like to speak about. I think I can't stress enough on, you know, how important it is to get more people interested again in, I guess, working in the industry. Um, it's just very disheartening when we get phone calls of somebody who needs help immediately. And it's just very difficult to staff last minute. I mean, this wasn't a problem four or five years ago. Now it's becoming a concern. And I know it's not just us. I know a lot of home care companies are going through the same thing. So hearing that desperation in those, in those callers voices and just hearing the disappointment, it's, it's getting tough. So uh, I would, I would, I, I really hope that, that people consider, um, working part-time or even full-time, you know, in the, in the industry and just giving it a chance and, and really making a difference in someone's life. How would somebody go about exploring the job market in um, uh, home care? Home care in general or, or home instead? Both. Um, well, for us, you can go on our website. Um, you can give our, our, our office a call um, for home care in general. I guess you can maybe call your local council on aging and ask about companies that they prefer or refer. Um, but I mean, I can give you our, our address right now and our, our, our telephone number if you'd like right now. Let's do it. Okay. So our, our address is homeinstead.com slash three, three, nine. And then our telephone number is 504-455-4911. I highly recommend anybody out there who is looking for, um, a, as, as you said, a fulfilling yes. way to uh, uh, work. Um, and and work is a funny word. It's definitely work. It is. It's it's hard work. I can tell you from, the, especially the one night that I uh, had to pick <laughs> up duties. And 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 it is um, really. Uh, it's such an important service from a societal point of view. So everybody wants to help. There's more and more of our our people, our population, younger and older, who want to do something to help society because we're all going through a, a difficult time and we're all asking the question, what can I do to help? Well, what you can do to help is not just get out on the street and, you know, hit the megaphone, <laughs> but also maybe it is to do a job that really um, serves people and, and, and is needed. It, it is a frightening experience not to have the help you need with someone at home because um, there's no options. I mean, exactly. you, you have to have that help. Uh, so it, it's pretty critical that we um, staff up, so to speak. And uh, I, I so much appreciate you spending some time with us. Now, listen, um, Christian, stay in touch. 
And um, as there are developments that you think it's important for people to know, I really wish you would pick up the phone and give us a call and we'll be glad to share it with our um, audience. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Jean. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm pretty short notice. I mean, we just kind of jumped on it. So um, <laughs> um, thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Beyond the sky, it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Beanie Bridgewater is a legendary, and and um, I I just you know in addition to having a spectacular voice and and a very creative. A way of singing. She is just a fantastic stage presence. So she is trying to share how she has developed her persona, her um, creative um, output, her life with other um, people in the music industry through a special program that she's a part of. So today we're going to have Dee Dee talk to us about this program and what she's been doing. So Dee Dee Bridgewater, and a, yes. a good friend and a person I just totally love. Tell yes. us about this program because um, I've heard about it. I know it's an important one. I didn't know about your involvement in it. Um, I'm not surprised at all because of, I, I know that you are generous with your support for other creatives. So t- t- tell me a little bit about it and what you've been doing with it and why. Well, the program is called The Woodshed Network, and I created the program. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I created this program and um, we are funded by the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation and we do the program. We're now in our fourth year and we do it with the um, nonprofit called 651 Arts out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, I created the program because I had been on a faculty for another program that was created by Betty Carter, which is called the Jazz Ahead program, and it's housed at the Kennedy Center. I was the only female faculty member, um, but because I was on the faculty in the second year that I was with them, we had seven women that made it into this program of 22 um, participants. And... um, Throughout that residency, um, I discovered how unsafe that space was for females. Um, There was a particular incident that happened and I had to blow the whistle on the faculty member and uh, it was brought to the attention of the president of the Kennedy Center, who is a woman and her name is Deborah Rutner. And when she found out what had happened, um, I had sent an email. She got the email and she came to our session for that morning and denounced the individual, uh, lauded me for being a whistleblower um, and also the fact that I was the only woman in the program, um, spoke on that and the person was... was, um, escorted from the Kennedy Center and is no longer able to go into the building. But uh, because of that particular incident and then an incident the year prior where there was a gentleman who was female identifying and the faculty was just talking about him awful behind his back. And I had another 
session with all of them and said they had to get their stuff together. And if they couldn't do this, that, that I wasn't going to be involved and I was going to blow a whistle. So that was the year prior. So out, out, out of these two experiences, I felt that there definitely was a need to have a safe space for female musicians in jazz, which is my genre. And um, I met with a woman who works with the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. She flew down to, to meet with me here in New Orleans. And um, we determined that there was a program needed. And then she hooked me up with uh, some individuals to help me write the grant. I originally was trying to do it in the city of New Orleans and do it at um, the uh, New Orleans Jazz Market. Um, which had my name on the stage. I thought that would be a, a wonderful space to do it in, but um, their financials were not in order, so we couldn't do it there. Um, so it's now housed with the this Brooklyn-based nonprofit, 651 Arts. Um, uh, the funding, as I said, is provided through the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, and it is for young women in jazz um, at the beginning of their careers or if they're midway through their careers and they are stalled. And it is only business. Um, we have um, an application period and uh, we choose uh, 12 women are selected from the applications and uh, they are selected by a committee. Um, I am not involved. Talani Bridgewater-Kowalski, my donager, I call her, my daughter and manager um, has created the actual program. And the program is uh, a two-week residency program from Monday to Friday, from uh, 9 a.m. to 5 or 6 p.m. And uh, the mentors, as I said, are all female. And uh, they come from all of the various aspects of, of what we need to create uh, or to have a good career. So uh, we've had already discussions about artist management. We invited some managers to come in and speak, festival presenters, um, visual storytelling, where we deal with uh, social media and our visual looks, our digital looks uh, when we're online, press and public relations. Today, we are talking about the recording industry, um, mixing and mastering. Um, we are also having a listening session today so that all of the, the mentees in the program, the 12 mentees can hear each other's works and get to know each other. What we also do with this program is we create a network system. So this is why it's called the Woodshed. Woodshed, uh, which gives reference to how musicians would shed back in the day and we called it woodshedding when they would practice. Um, networking because network because we want to create a network system for women in jazz. Um, what we're finding is that uh, now our presenters would like to have a networking system. Oh, set up interesting. For them because mm -hmm. they feel uh, that they don't have any kind of of way to stay in touch with other individuals in their line of work. So it's it's kind of spinning off into a lot of, of situations of, of need um, that is being brought to our attention. Um, we have a lot of applicants who are established um, artists and, and we don't accept them because this is for, you know, um, emerging. emerging artists and, and artists who are stuck in the beginnings or the middle of their careers. So, but, so we, we're now starting to see that there is a huge need 
in in many different arenas where it comes to women in the in the workforce and uh but this is as it pertains to the music industry and the jazz industry in particular so that's that's it in a, in a nutshell um we have um uh some of the alumna come on and talk about how the program has been helpful to them and and how it's helped them to advance their careers um and um, let's see, what else are we going to be speaking about? Um, next week, uh, we are going to be showing a film about um, the lady who swings the band, about Mary Lou Williams. Um, and uh, then we're going to be speaking about, we, we also uh, deal with wellness, health and wellness, um, physical and mental health and wellness. So we have a, a gynecologist coming on to speak with women. We have a, uh, a psychiatrist coming on to speak with us. Um, we have uh, a trainee, uh, a, a health mus a musician who's uh, uh, created a, a training program for staying fit when you're on the road and a nutrition program. So she's coming on. So we're just dealing with all the different aspects of, of having a career. So... Um... I I I I I, I can't resist um, jumping on the health issue you just raised mm -hmm. uh, because I have been for the past six months dealing with um, you know uh, the accident my husband had and and dealing yeah. with a nursing home and a hospital and and now home care and yeah. um, I, I, we're dealing with a totally dysfunctional system. Mm -hmm. That as one doctor quote uh, who wrote a column in the New York Times said um, that has caused a rampant demoralization amongst doctors who are having to serve corporate interests as opposed to patient interests. Right. And I have seen this in play uh, over and over again, despite yes. some um, incredible, uh, I would call them angels mm -hmm. that are in that industry who do very difficult work dealing with um patients who have serious health issues is not easy work at mm -hmm. all. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm in great uh, 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 admiration of those. But the overall system, which is uh, has become um, an excessive interest in the corporate side, and you watch these big monopolies competing with each other, as we are in New Orleans between, let's say, a system like LCMC and Ochsner, um, that's not to the advantage of, of patients. I mean, theoretically, competition, we always say in the capitalist universe, is a good thing because it is based on market demand and need. And ultimately, the, the, the entity that addresses that need the best is the one that, that evolves. But in the meantime, you have some decision-making processes that are horrifying. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear about that being part of your program. And I want to talk to you more offline about that. But um, yeah. this is a serious. It, it, and it's it's very interesting that I, I see there's, a, there's this linkage between the creatives and some of the key issues of our day. Health is one of them. Environment mm -hmm. is another. People in the visual arts are very focused on the environmental climate change issues, mm -hmm. for an, another example. And um, I, I was, was in the middle of writing my letter for this week's um, newsletter that I publish online. Right. And um, uh, I was talking about um, kind of, you know, the Dylan song, A Change is Gonna Come. And at some point, there's a breaking point in society when they've people have just simply had enough mm -hmm. with issues that really constrict their ability to have a decent life. 
Mm-hmm. Just let's just call it that a decent life. And right. so um, right now I've uh, and, and historically revolution in all its different forms doesn't have to be violent, you know, uh, revolution. It can be a societal revolution such as we had during the anti-Vietnam War er- issue, which is one of the eras that I was active in. Um, it, 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 it really is just a point at which people say, wait a second, this isn't right. We can't keep doing it this way. And mm-hmm. I think we're at that point universally right now. I think mm-hmm. the younger generation has said, are you kidding me? How did you guys allow it to get this bad where CEOs are making millions, millions, and, and people who are working just as hard as they are within their capacity or their limitations of education and lifestyle and, and class and bring upbringing and all those things, um, are, are so disadvantaged despite yeah. their hard work. And, and uh, I won't go into some of the things that are my biggest um, complaints about NAFTA, uh, uh, sending jobs offshore and closing factories all over our country um, for one, and, and, um, and, and just the fact that the, the market, the stock market dominates our culture in so many ways, including supporting candidates and, and policies that are disadvantageous to us. So I, I, and I think that the women's movement in many different ways, and you're talking about it in the creative arena, mm-hmm. but in, in many different ways is critical to this. Black Lives Matter is critical to this. And, and then I think one of my absolute favorite lack of patience moments, and I forget what you call uh, uh, the scarf that a Muslim woman is requ- required to wear um, in Muslim countries. Hajib. Is it a hijab? Hajib. Huh? Hajib. Hajib. Mm-hmm. The, the women taking their hajibs off in countries where they're, they're putting their lives at risk mm-hmm. for doing that is as, as metaphoric of this moment in time in, in the world as mm-hmm. you can get. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm well, curious to what extent ahead. you feel the music community in general, not just women, is tuned into this time that we're at, which I think is a time of saying, okay, the time for patience and, and, and um, anti-poverty programs as opposed to more dramatic and and comprehensive changes in who has the levers of power in our community. To what extent are you guys involved in that? Well, you know, you're talking about an industry that is is quite large. And so I'd say like in any other creative industry, there's going to be there are going to be people who are concerned with the social mores and and are doing commentary on it through their art. And then there are those who are just going to continue to be concerned about themselves. So um, I cannot really speak on the industry, the whole jazz industry and what's going on with with musicians. I can only speak on on what I know, which is my work. Um, But I can say that um, there is an awakening that is happening in the jazz industry about women and and our place in the industry. And women are uh, being employed more now. We start to see a a more of a physical presence of of women in in male-dominated bands and um, 
at festivals and in the lineup of, of uh, seasons at performing arts centers and, and just seasons at, at, at various theaters across the country. So we are beginning to see more of a female presence and that is a good thing, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, the jazz industry is, is a very, very macho industry and there are still issues. Mm. I'm still dealing with issues. I just did a, a tour and uh, we have a second half to this tour in April, but I finished it um, in January. And there was myself and a young woman who was part of my program. Her name is Lakeisha Benjamin and she's an amazing alto saxophonist, but we were in a situation where we felt very, very alienated mm -hmm. and uh, found ourselves, you know, just being together. And it was kind of an us them situation. And, um, and, it, and it kind of spilled onto, onto the stage and, and we had to take ownership on the stage. We decided you're not gonna do this to us on the stage. Wow. And we mm -hmm. took ownership and then we were the ones that were, we brought the light and we brought the energy and we brought everything. And then I had to use my, my voice to speak up about our housing. Um, there were some, some hotels we were put in and they were not good. And finally I said, I'm not staying in these. And this is not a part of my deal. I've been trying to accommodate you. So it's, it's, um, it's still a fight, it's still a struggle. Um, and all that I'm trying to do with this program, I can't say I, Talani and I are trying to do, and then the the, the mentors, uh, is to give these young women enough ammunition so that they know how to handle situations such as this one that uh, Lakeisha and I recently found ourselves in. And that's all we can do, you know? So I mentor through the program and then I'm just a personal mentor. Um, young people, men and women in, in the business know that they can come to me if they have any questions and I'm very open. And the mentees all call me Mama Didi. So I'm, I'm Mama Didi now. And uh, that's um, a beautiful thing. Yeah, but Didi, ultimately what's really critical and this is again, part of our recommendations is that programs such as your Woodshed program and, and others, um, that deal with a, a limited population, we have to figure out how to replicate these. So like, let's take, for example, in New Orleans, where we have this huge creative population and mm -hmm. a school system that really doesn't have uh, any kind of creative industries training, um, either career development, uh, sure. uh, career counseling, or education as to um, uh, what's available in the industry and how to get into it and how to, to develop your career. If if we don't do that, we are so um, cheating, not just the artists, but the entire community and and um, economy of our state from its ability to fulfill potential in economic development from the creative assets. So, how do we take what you're doing and replicate that? I'm sure I'm sure you've given this some thought. Well, yeah, and we we were speaking about it as recently as yesterday in our wrap up after the the day's session. So um, we don't have that answer. We're trying to figure that out ourselves um, um, just with this program because there uh, there have been a couple of schools who have have talked to us about replicating the program. So it's um, 
I think through careful planning, which is what we intend to do after we finish the program uh, on March 10th, then we're going to have uh, some meetings to discuss how we can pay this forward. We're going to, you know, talk with the, the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which is our funder, um, to, to see how we can pay this forward um, on more of, of a national scale. So we, we've got to figure out how to take this to the next level, which is what you're talking about. We haven't gotten there yet, but it is certainly something that's necessary. It is certainly something that can spill over into the needs that we have right here in New Orleans um, and in the creative community. Um, it's certainly something that I have been asked uh, about from some of the singers here in New Orleans. And so I'm very aware of the need in the city um, as well as the need in the jazz community. So I, so, I, um, yeah. I, I would love to uh, talk with you about um, this uh, when you get ready to do that discussion. I want to share with you some things that have been going on here. And okay. uh, I certainly want to see New Orleans be one of the um, uh, pilot cities, so to speak, uh, if this goes forward, because. Yeah, we well, so I want to make it that because yeah. it's it's such an important city and it, you know, it's it's historically where jazz began. So it just makes sense to me that we would have a program here, you know, and um, yeah, so so we're talking about that. We really right. are. And and um, I'm very much aware of, of the lack of information here in the city for our creatives. But it seems to be, Jane, a lack of information that is across the country. Yeah. You know, in the in the in the creative scene. So we're not our country does not support the arts like it used to. And that's yeah. that's part of the big problem. And then it's been taken out of the school systems. And well our school system is a whole other yep. can of worms. Um but um I think what is what is wonderful is that we're beginning to have a lot of grassroots um, organizations who are taking it upon themselves to do things in, in various communities across the country. So it's going to be, we're going to have to network. We're going to have to network all of this. And it just seems like this is where we are, are, are now headed in, in, in general, is doing it ourselves. You know, the recording industry went bust. You know, so so many artists now are are having to produce their own records and get distribution deals and and um, and manage everything about you know their their the recording aspect of of their their careers in music. So and that spills beyond jazz. So it's it's just we're all in. We're at the old of the things we knew, and we're all kind of floundering trying to figure out how we're going to move things forward post-pandemic because it's a real thing. I think um, the pandemic is going to turn out to be a very important turning point as often some catastrophic event in, in history does mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, stimulate um, the energy uh, and kind of the all bets are off 
moment that allows us to break free from our patterns and 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 uh, do something new. It's yeah. the yin and yang that, yeah. that I've always really believed in. So um, I'm going to stay tuned to you, not just for your music, which I love, but uh, for what you're talking about and trying to make this happen. And um, as I said, it's it's it is the number one recommendation of our strategic plan. Um, and we are also looking for how to do it. So I yeah. would like to talk with you a lot more about this going forward. Me too. Oh, and, Danny, thank um, you so much for your time. Yeah. And um, I hope you're going to be around the city for just a little bit and you come here over to Esplanade and, and pay this. Yes. Listen, um, I just want your listeners to know that they can check out the Woodshed Network. We have a website and it's called Woodshed, W-O-O-D-S-H-E-D, Network. N-E-T-W-O-R-K, all one word, dot com. So you can see the previous programs. You can get an idea of what we're about and read up on all of the uh, alumna and uh, the presenters. And, and um, yeah. All right. Thanks so much okay. for, the, uh, for squeezing me into your program. I know you got to yeah. get back to this. Yeah, I got to get back to it now. <laughs> all right. Take care. Talk okay, to you Talk to you. Bye. Bye-bye.